Drew and Jonathan Scott here to tell you that American Family Insurance wants to protect your dreams. So whether you're at home singing in the shower, every note, or prefer singing your heart out in the car like Drew, cruising, you can save up to 23% when you bundle your home and auto insurance with American Family Insurance. Get a quote or find an agent at amfam.com. Insure carefully, dream fearlessly. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. From earaches to strep tests, visit Miniclinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at pharmacy of choice. Visit Miniclinic.com for details. The program you are about to hear is largely fiction, science fiction. We make no guarantees, however, how long it will remain fiction. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. Here, sir, you, you better take a look at it. Trade organizations like Versa and the MFA and professional organizations like the Coalition for Registration of Exercise Professionals have been advocating for the well-qualified exercise professional as that community-based resource that consumers can rely on for programs and leadership to help them live their healthiest life. Predicated on, on that, though, is that the individuals hold and maintain credible certifications that are on par with the other adjacent health occupations, occupations like athletic training, dietetics, physical therapy. Um, people frequently ask what the future looks like for the exercise professional, specifically around education and credentialing. Our belief that there, while there may be some turbulence in the months ahead for the current and future exercise professional, the future is overwhelmingly bright. Schools are open again, students are graduating and earning certification, and employers are eager to hire them. There is also a push to provide a more diverse and welcoming environment for all persons, both participants and a workforce that more closely resembles our communities. We're seeing a much more diverse set of certification candidates than we have in the past. For those that are interested in the more entrepreneurial route, there are new tools and platforms to support their business and clientele, and continuing education credit is available from those courses and workshops that go towards renewing their certification. We believe that professionals would be wise to pursue education and training on technology, business, sales, marketing to supplement their skills in developing and delivering exercise programs. When we take a longer view, there are a number of initiatives that we believe have potential. Organizations like the Physical Activity Alliance are working on exercise prescription and coverage determinations with the Centers for Medicare Services, CMS, and we are closely following the AMA CPT panel meetings opportunities to include qualified exercise professionals as part of that service delivery team. Part of that effort is the creation of an exercise referral framework that places patients, clients, or athletes on a continuum as opposed to a hierarchy based on the level of physician oversight necessary. That oversight includes physician supervised, like you'd have in a cardiac rehab environment, physician referred, those individuals that have chronic disease or other um, conditions, physician cleared, which would be for athletes, um, contingent to their participation, and or physician recommended. 
This allows every professional on the continuum to practice at the top of their credential or license. I think that there is a range of types of credentials, and I think educating and raising awareness about the rigorous credentialing path versus the not as rigorous credentialing path. So really distinguishing ourselves as credentialed fitness professionals for those who might not have pursued as rigorous a process. I would also say that it's not one time, I got my credential 20 years ago and that is my knowledge base really showing how we evolve as fitness professionals i'm a huge supporter of specialty certifications i'm a huge supporter of continuing education showing that we as fitness professionals are constantly striving and learning and adding to our knowledge base to show that we can work with different types of populations and help them achieve their best health outcomes. You just listened to Graham Melstrand and Dr. Amy Bantham, uh, two wonderful colleagues of mine and people who are really trying to do incredible work to help raise up the credentialing and training of our profession. What you've heard is that there's a long way to go but there's certainly a bright outlook, and having these discussions and having action about them is really important. Michael and I step into this arena, provide an engaging discussion about credentialing and training. Sit back, relax, enjoy the discussion. This is Mike Stack, host of the Wellness Paradox podcast. This is Dr. Darian Parker, host of Dr. D's Social Network. And this is the, the Frontline front of, of fitness. fitness. Where are we at in this whole training credentialing journey as opposed to where we were? Or is it any different right now? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So where, where, where are we at? Well, Again, we, we talked about in the, in the first episode, we are, we're in our infancy here as well. I think over time with the proliferation of just, you know, fitness in general, and more people have gotten involved in fitness, you know, over the years, and there's certainly been more opportunity. You see more and more certifications spring up, uh, more and more academic programs spring up. And, you know, if anything, it, that has, that has added to the confusion and the noise you know, not taken away from it. And right now, I would say the state of both our certifications and our academic education in universities and colleges is it's very fragmented, yeah. unlike any other aspect of allied health. This is physical therapy school, you know, nurse practitioner school, med school. There are these standardized curriculums and credentialing across the entire ecosystem that are standardized and everybody understands that is what it is and it's the path you follow and what's important there is not only do the practitioners and clinicians understand that that's the path but the public 
and the payers, the health insurers, they understand that's that path. So there's this universal understanding, whereas, you know, as I mentioned in the first episode, no one knows the difference between an ACSM certification, which those of us that are in the industry know mm-hmm. that that is the gold standard that's and right rightfully so, yeah. versus you know, a certification like uh, you know the ISSA certification, which mm-hmm. isn't a bad certification by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just different. The ACSM, you have to have a degree for it. Yeah, and so um, I think that 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 is that is the challenge. Um, I think what we can see though is that there's a level of rigorousness between the different certifications that the the consumer has no clue whether if you're NSCA, ACSM, whether you're ISSA, you name letters uh, for it. And some may have, or CSCS, some may be, hey, you have to have a bachelor's degree to sit for a test. And others like, hey, I was on the internet and I saw this and I said, why not me? You know, (laughs) there's like, there's no uniformity with it. And to your point about uh, colleges, I've had some very interesting discussions with uh, professors and different universities. And you're you're affiliated with the university, you know, University of Michigan. And I've talked to some different places. And a lot of the students coming in are not coming in to be personal trainers. They're coming in to do the DPT program, other like programs. And most of the curriculum is geared towards those programs with a very, very tiny percentage of them wanting to actually have a fitness-based mm-hmm. career. It's what, we're, what I'm seeing. Yeah, I agree. And, but I, I do think on some level that is changing. Uh, like at University of Michigan, we have an applied exercise science curriculum that I teach in that is very much designed for people that want to be you know, frontline fitness professionals. And then we have a movement science major that is the, the pre-professional major where people go on to get a terminal degree in you know, physical therapy or they go to med school or PA school or something like that. So I think the good news is that's changing on sub-level. Uh, the challenge is, is that it just because it is changing in the sense that these programs are starting to occur doesn't mean there's more standardization. If anything, there's probably less standardization Mm -hmm. as these programs all decide to do different things. So I think what the, the hard circle to square here is that, you know, there's, there's two elements to this really there's, you know, academic learning in in a college or university setting and then there is, you know, post-academic credentialing, which is supposed to be, you know, verification of your practical skill set. And somehow, some way, those two worlds need to talk to each other and work with each other. And then there also needs to be uniformity from university to university to ensure, you know, what we're teaching our students at University of Michigan is the same thing that being taught at University of Washington, at University of Texas. So when everyone graduates from their academic program, they have that baseline level of knowledge that allows them to get the appropriate credential, which then that leads to the other challenging question, which is, you know, what is the appropriate credential? (laughs) We have, we have a for-profit certification based in the fitness industry for the most part, not, not everyone's for-profit ACSM, uh, NFCA, ACE or not, uh, but you know, they're all vying over the market and they're all trying to be the one and, you know, this is where there needs to be some reform. Now, I, I don't know exactly what that reform looks like, but what I, what I do know is that it's not going to happen without collaboration. It's not going to happen without the people from the, the major certification organizations, ACE, ACSM, NSCA, NASM, those kind of groups, 
all getting into the same room with people who are from academia and saying, you know, this is what we need to do to advance this industry uh, from a, a public health standpoint and also from an academic credentialing standpoint. And it's hard because there's a lot of a lot of different opinions there. There's a lot of egos there. I don't think universities necessarily want the ACSM, NSCA, and ACE to tell them what to do. I don't think ACSM, NSCA, and ACE wants to be told by the universities what to do. So somehow, some way, we're going to have to come to consensus on this because, Darren, this is this is the root of I think a lot of our challenges is that you know we have a trust issue because we have a credentialing process issue. And until we are willing to have those hard conversations, make compromises, and have a, a education and credentialing system that mirrors all the other allied health professions, medicine, uh, psych, psychology, dietetics, nursing, go on on the list. It needs to look the same. The template's there. It's right it's there. there. We, we just need to step up to the plate and be willing to deal with the messiness and discomfort of making that a reality. And you know, quite frankly, everyone everywhere probably needs to set their egos aside for the, the larger goal of you know, actually getting us onto the healthcare continuum. That, you know, I feel like I've had this conversation since like the early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> but this yeah. was one in like the body type one is kind of new. This one I feel is old, like since yeah. the beginning of, I mean, this is something that I, I, I honestly like we're going to have people on and this is the great thing I think about this thing we're doing is we're going to get you some amazing people from these organizations to give some clips snippets about their viewpoint for this but you have you have so many certifications that it's almost dizzying the number mm -hmm. and then what's the right pathway but then you also have you have commentary that I've heard that some really high up people are like we just need to blow it all up we need to like, we need to bring it to its knees and start over and have like a pathway for this. It almost mirrors to me, this is kind of almost mirrors, mirrors streaming platforms. How many streaming platforms are there now, right? Yeah. It's basically like a personal training certification. Can you have Paramount Plus, Hulu, Netflix, yeah. you name it, everything. And it's, it gets saturated when you have all these things and people get paralyzed by the amount of options paralyzed. that they have, right? So we... We have to come together, get rid of our egos and say, hey, the template is there. There are board certification exams. There are one-way processes that everyone can go through that people have trust. Say, oh yeah, I know that these people all went through this process. Mm -hmm. Versus when you get somebody in you're like, well, you know, did you, did you like sit for this over the weekend? Or was this kind of like you went to college, you didn't go to college, like what's the deal? Getting all those people in a room would be amazing. I would love to hear from them. What's the plan? <laughs> like, cause I don't know, honestly. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's going to require a lot of really, really smart people to, you know, as we said, to set their egos aside and to really consider the greater good here. But yeah, I don't know what the plan is either. I mean, shoot, if you or I knew what the plan is, you, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd probably, <laughs> we'd probably be going to implement the plan, but yeah. I, I know that it, it can't start without more honest, vulnerable conversation and candor. And here's the thing, as we sit here and talk about this, it, it's not as if all is lost and this isn't happening at all. These, these conversations are starting to happen. Uh, I just think they need to happen more broadly and yeah. more frequently. And just with a lot more 
authenticity in service of the larger objective here, which is you know, if we do this the right way, then there'll be so much abundance for us to be able to all enjoy that you know the I think the scarcity mentality that's that, that's really resulted in a lack of collaboration in the past will start to fall away because we, now we start to realize that that other 80% of the public that never engaged with us, now they're going to start to engage more because they trust us because they understand the education process that we went to. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you hear that a doctor did their medical school training, you know, in the Caribbean. And that's not to say that you can't be an amazing <laughs> doctor and do your medical right. school training in the Caribbean. But when people hear that, you know, they, they pause and they question it for a second. And it's almost like in our industry, you know, that pausing in that question is happening all the time. And, and what you said earlier, I think is really important to highlight. It's, it's this paralysis of analysis. It's just like, well, ACE, ACSM, NASM, degree, no degree, looks great, is a little bit overweight. There's, there's all these decisions and people that are ambivalent about exercise and physical activity, all of a sudden they're like, well, the heck with it. Like, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what to do. So I'm just not going to do anything. And, and, you know, we are, we are causing the very thing we are trying to prevent by all of these various education vehicles that exist. We, we totally are. And it actually brings me to another facet of this, which is like the state licensure conversation, which I, I remember this being a much larger conversation, maybe like eight to 10 years ago, there was a lot of momentum and states like New Jersey and different places that were trying to push for state uh, licensure. But then I also was reading and that a lot of the certifications, I could be wrong, my memory may be hurting on this, were against it, actually. So I don't know what you've seen with this, but I know that I know there's been a lot of work in this area, but I haven't seen it so much in that lately, but I may be off on that. Yeah, yeah it's something that you hear often talked about. And it is a it's a word that definitely generates a visceral response from a lot of people. Uh, you know, licensure is a, a way, I think, to handle something like this at a, at a state level. I think the concern, broadly speaking, and, and I, I would echo this concern, is that it does suggest a, a level of regulatory compliance that might be onerous for a fitness professional or a health and fitness club. I think broadly speaking, we're not interested in the government, you know, poking around in our businesses, you know, any more than what they absolutely have to. And right. if that was true before COVID, I think <laughs> that is, you know, infinitely more true now. So I think you are correct. Licensure has been talked about. It's been batted around. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a, a very strong appetite for it among the certification organizations, certainly amongst the commercial clubs. And as I said, I, I don't know if it addresses the fundamental issue mm -hmm. as much as it just seems to address a symptom of the problem uh, and saying, okay, hey, you know, we're, we're licensed by the state. Well, great. Does that resolve you know, the, the continuity in our academic curriculums? Does right. that resolve kind of a, a, a credentialing board or some type of examination that is standardized? You know, not not particularly. So I think yes, it's it is a lever that can be pulled, but I I don't think it's the lever, and I think that's it's why you've seen you know people go away from it. I do think you know the the certification for register or the um, it's C reps. So mm -hmm. the it's the uh, 
certification for registered exercise professionals, I believe, is uh, or credentialing for registered exercise professionals. I'm getting the acronym wrong, and I feel very, very bad because I just had Graham Milstrand yeah. uh, speak in my class at U of M, and <laughs> you know, so we were talking about CREP, yeah. and I can't remember the specific acronym, but nevertheless, if you become certified through an NCCA accredited certification organization, ACE, ACSM, NSCA, and so on, uh, you become part of this, this, this registry of exercise professionals. And that moves us in a positive direction. But there again, not a lot of people even know that CREP exists. I mean, I know, you right. know, some, exactly. industry, some industry people know, but some. not all industry yeah. people know. Again, and it's just, it's because it exists out there in just this this fragmented chasm that is our industry. And, and look, the infrastructure is there for that. It's there. I just, uh, we need to operationalize that and leverage that a little bit more. And we're just not right now. What do you think about, I mean, I've thought about this and I think there was some argument about this. I mean, related to licensure, but, but even beyond that, just like the more rigorousness, uh, rigorous level of a program or entry into a system uh, there, I think there's been some complaints that that may greatly decrease the amount of professionals in that industry. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, all these things are double-edged swords, right? And there's, there's, there's consequences, in some cases, unintended consequences to your actions, your decisions. I think that that, that could be true if we weren't intentional about the way we structured it. Mm. But what I foresee is a, a continuum of providers that would allow us to actually broaden the opportunities. And I'll use the, the physical therapy realm uh, as a good avatar for what we're talking about here. You know, in PT, you have you know, a physical therapy tech, you have a physical therapy aid, and, and then you have a physical therapist. And there's these different levels of care that could be provided by each of these different professionals. And, and I think we can structure a system like that. I'm not saying that absolutely everyone needs to train with someone who has a four-year degree mm -hmm. and is certified by the American College of Sport Medicine as an exercise physiologist, because everyone doesn't need to be trained by that kind of individual. Some people can be trained by other individuals that were properly credentialed and trained that are working at the top of their license. And that's, that is the buzzword in healthcare. We want everyone working at the top of their license. Somebody who's got a four-year degree, who's credentialed by some national standard, that's the person that should be working with the individual that has multiple comorbidities, uh, that understands that special population. The vast majority of people that are coming to a, a fitness club now that are just looking to maybe you know lose 10 pounds, get a little more jack, be in better shape, they can work with those professionals that are uh, maybe less rigorously credentialed. So Whereas some people might view it as, man, you're 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 cutting our you're cutting our legs off by requiring a higher ceiling for entry into this field. I very much see it the other way. We could set a high ceiling that allows us to accommodate the more complex populations, but then we can taper down from an educational and a credentialing standpoint to other professionals. And in my mind structuring it in that manner would actually lead to a more viable path for those people. Meaning the people right now that, you know, have been in the industry for a while that kind of pop in and pop out are the people who maybe don't have the opportunity to have those formal you know, educational experiences. And so I actually think that if structured the right way, and again, I, I certainly don't have 
the answer in its totality, but if structured the right way, it leads to far more opportunity, not less, because you have a you have a more educated and valuable workforce, and then you have greater demand in the marketplace because we've driven more trust with the consumer, with the healthcare professionals, and with public health officials, and then it becomes this virtuous cycle uh, that just success builds on success. And it's funny, as like you said, there's there's a playbook for this on many ways. I mean, it's yeah. like my wife is a nurse yeah. and okay. nursing is a great example because you can start like she teaches nursing at uh, the college here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can teach in the actual nursing registered nurse program, the LPN certified nursing assistant. And often you have people in those programs that maybe start as a nursing assistant mm-hmm. and then want more education and move up and then maybe become an LPM, and then, hey, I want to become a registered nurse. And then on the highest level, you may become a nurse who has their doctorate and then work in the collegiate system as maybe the dean or the chair of a department, and it's a more research-based nursing position for that. Feels like that could be a similar stepwise progression for us as well. Yeah, you you absolutely got it. Again, it's we do not need to reinvent the wheel here. You know, we we have a medical and allied health education system in this country that, in terms of what it needs to do, it works well. I, I think, and we're, you know, we'll get into this in our next episode. Yeah. Um, I think there's some issues with the overall structure of healthcare and healthcare policy yeah. in this country. But as far as educating qualified professionals to produce consistent health outcomes. We do it. The, here's the challenge. And, and we said it earlier around, you know, do you just blow this thing up and you start over? As attractive on some level as that may be, <laughs> I, I don't think it's feasible, although it, we've kind of already been, you know, we haven't been blown up completely, but we've been pretty wounded uh, by the pandemic. And this is why this inflection point exists. Like if there was ever a time to do it, it's now when, you know, the, the market has shrunk. The number of professionals has reduced. This is a much easier thing for us to do at this point. What are the steps to, you know, kind of put the genie back in the bottle a little bit and then, you know, get it back out? I I don't entirely know, but I do think it starts with this, you know, analysis of, you know, the education system first and how that interplays with the certification and credentialing system. And it's just, it's having conversations and it's, it's trying some experiments. I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, there could be small scale experiments ran to actually see the viability of some of these ideas before we scale it up on a national level. But again, we've talked about this many times, it has to happen, because if it doesn't happen, we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And we're going to keep getting the same results over and over and over again, which is, again, we're working with the same 20% of people, we're continuing to get the fit fitter, while at the same time, the other 80% of the population becomes more diseased, more unwell, leads worse lives, and ultimately become a massive economic drain. And not not to put it in a a crass or non-humanistic way, but they become an economic drain on our society. Because, you know, eventually, you know, as all these chronic medical conditions become more and more severe, and we get more and more of a critical mass of people, uh, the healthcare system, from an economic standpoint, starts to collapse on itself. And then what do we do? Right. You know, I always envision uh, the educational, I really think that's the root aspect of it. I always envision, well, thinking about the job of, let's say, a fitness professional, which encompasses so much more than just exercise or physical activity. 
and that this human needs to have such an incredible, well-rounded education to handle the psychosocial, environmental, emotional aspects of working spirituality with a person. Mm-hmm. And I envision, uh, like I was very fortunate, my education as a fitness professional, I think was well ahead of its time. I mean, I had part of our requirement was to have a therapist mm-hmm. and uh, we had basic counseling skills. I mean, this was in the nineties. Yeah. This is like way ahead of its time. Um, in addition to, obviously we learned through the ACSM handbook. I think it was a black book that I learned yep. from then. I, rem- I, rem- I remember that. Yeah. Remember yeah. that. Right. And so it was like, you're doing the YMCA bike test protocol, you know, you're doing everything, man. You know, you're doing hematocrit, all this stuff, Wingate tests. I mean, it's great. Like if you want to work in a laboratory, you know, in a sense, and want to be more of a hospital medical based, maybe exercise physiologist, but it doesn't address actually being in the larger public out there of people going to gyms and things of that nature. And I almost often see like an education station, education system that has an heavy, heavy emphasis on the psychology of working with people, the kinesiology, the study of movement with people, understanding the business aspect, because a lot of people get in the business have zero business acumen, yeah. like zero, yeah. you know, you, and that's what I hear from a lot of the professors is that the students are, and they are daunted by the prospect of being in business and fitness because they don't have the business background. And it feels like this is not a secure way to have a career. If I go and do the DPT, I know I'm going to work for somebody. I'm going to have a stable paycheck, all those things. We have to make it more enticing for people coming out of high school or going to college to say, this is an actual career for me and it's going to be more stable. You know? Yeah. And there's so many things to that, to make that a reality. Certainly yes. the, you know, the payment element, the reimbursement element, like, you know, how, how do we do that? But it starts with, I really believe this, Darren, it starts with, you know, we need to do a viable career needs assessment for the modern day fitness yes. professional. Yes. Like we, we, and when I say we, I mean, broadly as an industry, we need to sit down and say, you know, what are the, the knowledge, skills, and abilities that this individual needs to have, not what we think they need to have from, you know, the way our curriculums were developed in the 80s and 90s, but what does the current day professional need to have? And how do we ensure that that's a thread that we can weave through all of the programs throughout the country, all of the credentialing exams, you know, and how do we ensure that they maintain those skills year after year after year to maintain their credential or their license? So, um, it's difficult. And on some level, it's a chicken or the egg thing. It's like, yeah. okay, you know, if we get the reimbursement, then it becomes easier to do this. But if we don't do this, we're never going to get the reimbursement. And again, I don't, I don't have the perfect answer to that, but I, I will say anything worthwhile requires sacrifice and effort. And on some level, we just may have to bite the bullet and say, okay, we need to invest. And when I say we, that is, you know, the commercial fitness industry, uh, the medical community, our government, we need to invest in getting this right now, because as chronic diseases proliferate, and they start to, you know, become more and more commonplace and more economically messy to handle, and our healthcare system does start to become overburdened financially, you know, then, then we're at a point of no return. You know, eventually, there becomes a point where, you know, we do fall off the healthcare economic cliff, and when that happens, I really don't know how you come back from that. There's not, there's not a vaccine coming to save us from 
chronic lifestyle diseases. It's just not happening. We, we as fitness professionals are that vaccine, but we need, we mm. need to do our, we need to do our work to make sure that we actually, you know, get out of the clinical trials phase <laughs> and actually, you know, are the shots in people's arms that they need to, to actually address some of these chronic health issues. Man, Michael, you weaved through that very deftly. I like, <laughs> that was amazing. Oh my goodness. And, and speaking to that, the kind of the, when, especially as people enter that uh, morbidity window, where generally when people start developing chronic disease or, and things start to change with people's body and their mind, especially with all those things, we now know that more people than ever are in poor health for a longer period of time once mm -hmm. they get into that window. So we're already seeing the, the train is going downhill. It's happened yeah. already. So we got to do something because this thing is starting to tip the edge and go, hey, we're going to spend a long time and uh, financially crippling people and uh, in their lifestyle and their lives, you know? Yeah. It's it. Well, it's, it's the, it's the interesting, you know, dichotomy and paradox of medicine. It, we give people the ability to live longer lives, but not necessarily better lives. Yes. And it's the difference between health span and lifespan. The lifespan is how li long you live. Health span is how long you live healthfully. Uh, sadly, lifespan has reduced as of late, right. uh, but it's in the mid seventies, somewhere like that. And health span for most people sits in the mid, mid to late fifties. So that means you're living, you know, 20% of your life in relatively ill health. And you know, when we say that, you know, in healthcare, it's, you know, 20% of the people cost us 80% of the money. Well, you know, as that's, as we start to live longer and more diseased, you know, that, that monetary amount is going to become higher and higher and higher. And Again, we'll talk about this morning in the healthcare system and healthcare policy, but eventually we cannot pay for it. Like eventually there's just not any more money in the piggy bank. And when that happens, if I don't have the answer to how we standardize credentialing in our industry, I really can't even begin to wrap my head around the just cacophony of challenges that occur when you break the bank in our healthcare system.